Hi everyone, this is Robert. Welcome to The Well-Told Tale. Each week we bring to life the finest science fiction and fantasy stories ever written. This week we return to the tales of Sinbad. He sits in the city of Baghdad telling the stories of how he came by his immense fortune. He has already told of three voyages filled with adventure, mind-boggling experiences and terrible monsters, but he has more tales to tell. So, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy the second part of Sinbad the Sailor. The Fourth Voyage of Sinbad the Sailor Led by the desire to associate with other races and to buy and sell for gain, for the soul is prone to evil, I departed from Baghdad with many precious bales and set sail from El-Bazra in a large ship on which a company of other merchants embarked in like fashion. For many days we had a pleasant journey among the islands, and all went well with us until, on reaching the wider sea beyond, a mighty wind came up against us. The sea rose in great waves as the tempest increased and we were in dire peril. More and more violent grew the gale, lashing the sea into fury. The sails were rent, the masts were blown away, we sprang a leak, and slowly the vessel began to sink. We gave ourselves up for lost, and indeed, when the waves passed over us and we sank, many perished. But in the seething turmoil, it was my good fortune to be cast against a broad plank which I seized and held. Others were struggling for life nearby, and I was able to draw some of them to me. Sore buffeted as we were by wind and wave, we mounted that plank and sat astride of it. Thus, through a whole day and night, we drifted before the gale, now descending into despairing hollows of the sea, and now flung up on the mountain tops of billows. At dawn on the following day, the sea cast us like dead men upon an island, where for many hours we lay exhausted. Albeit, strength began to return to us again, and we arose feebly and staggered forth into the island. Fruit and herbs were there in abundance, and clear fresh water, so we ate and drank and were revived. That night we slept upon the shore, and in the morning we arose strengthened and invigorated. When we had broken our fast, we set ourselves to explore the island, and had not gone far in this before we came to a great building. As we stood at the door of this, wondering who dwelt within, A party of naked men came out, and without a word seized us and led us into a spacious apartment where we found ourselves standing before their king. He commanded us to be seated, and they brought us food of a strange kind such as we had never seen. My companions ate largely of this, but my stomach revolted at it, and I ate but little, a thing which preserved me from a terrible fate. For as my companions ate... They became mad with a ravenous hunger, and ate more and more. Presently they were given coconut oil to drink, and when they had swallowed it, their eyes rolled in their heads, and they continued to eat in a frenzy horrible to behold. I was consumed with fear at these things, and said within myself, This is a tribe of the Magi, and their king is a ghoul. As I observed them attentively, I remembered a story of these people, how they seize on travellers and set this loathsome food before them to eat, and give them the oil to drink, so that they swell out and eat more and more, until they are fattened to an enormous degree, and their minds are rendered like those of idiots, whereupon in due time they kill and roast them, 
and serve them up as food to their king. And all these things I saw in the days that my companions were fattening, for there were others who had been seized before us, and each day one of these was killed and roasted and set before the king. While I was wasting away with fear and hunger, and it was on this account that they forgot me and left me to die in my own way, my companions had come to be like dull, heavy, stupid beasts of the field, so that they were placed in the care of a beast-herd who led them forth each day to the pasturage. As for myself, as soon as I observed that I was a failure in that I would not fatten, and that none took heed of me nor marked my coming or my going, I arose in the night and crept away among the trees surrounding the king's dwelling. Then, when morning came, I went forth with a heart of fear, knowing not what fresh terror I should encounter. In my wanderings back and forth, I came about midday to a stretch of green pasture, where I beheld with sorrow my late companions grazing on all fours and fattening like beasts for the slaughter, while the beast-herd sat upon a rock and piped on an oaten reed. I breathed a silent farewell to them, as to those I should never see again, and turned sadly away. My heart was cold within me, and my steps were faltering as I wandered on, pausing here and there to gather edible herbs and roots which, for want of something better, served to sustain life in my body. Journeying in this way I came at length to a grove of pepper trees, and there were men at work in it, gathering the berries. Their aspect seemed to me as peaceable, so I exposed myself, and they approached me and pressed upon me, asking my name and whence I had come, for my aspect excited their curiosity. Then I unfolded to them the tale of the adventures, the perils and the horrors that had befallen me, and when I had related the sad case of my companions, they wondered greatly at my escape. While they resumed their work, they made me welcome amongst them, and set nutritious food before me, the like of which I had not tasted for many days. I regaled myself on their bounty, and rested, and was content. When they had finished their work at the setting of the sun, they took me with them to the seashore, and I accompanied them in their vessel to an island not far distant, where they brought me to their king. And there, before them and his court, at his command, I narrated my adventures since leaving Baghdad, at which his interest was kindled, and he bade me sit with him and eat. And I did so gladly, for my body was thin and meagre, and my vigour was sorely wanting. After that, having shown my gratitude to the king and offered praise to God for his saving grace, I rose, and with the king's permission went forth into his city. It was a well-conditioned, flourishing place, thronged with buyers and sellers, and there was an abundance of food and rich merchandise. As day followed day and time drew on, I had cause to rejoice at my arrival in that city, for I found favour with the king, and he magnified me over his people and his great men. Observing the ways of the people, I saw that the horses that they rode were without saddles, whereupon I went in to the king and spoke to him on the matter, describing a saddle and the ease and comfort of it. At this the king desired me to make him one, and placed at my disposal his cleverest carpenter with many tools and instruments. And I sat with the carpenter and instructed him how to proceed, so that the saddle, covered with polished leather and stuffed with teased wool, was soon complete. I attached stirrup straps and girths, and showed the blacksmith how to fashion the stirrups. Then, with the aid of costly fringes and trappings, the work was complete. Full of satisfaction, I sent for one of the king's finest horses, saddled and bridled him, and led him before his majesty. 
He was greatly pleased at the sight of what I had done, and when he had mounted the horse and sat in the saddle, he was overjoyed at the ease and pleasure of it, and bestowed upon me a large reward. When the king's chief officials and the grandees of his court saw the saddle which I had made, they each and all desired me to make others like it. Then, with the carpenter and the blacksmith, I employed many days in the construction of numerous saddles, and for these I received much gold, and rose to an assured position in the land. The high rank and honour which the king had bestowed upon me had but half expressed his heart towards me. I was yet to learn that he had a further favour in store. One day, while I was sitting at his right hand discussing affairs of state, he said to me, O oh, my son, seeing thou hast now become as one of us, and we cannot part with thee, I desire that thou give ear to a matter which I have planned, and which will bind thee more closely to us. And I answered him, For thy great kindness to me, O king, I am now and henceforth thy faithful servant. What dost thou desire me to do? And he looked at me intently, and said, I would marry thee to a woman of high rank among us, one possessed of great beauty and wealth, so that thou mayest continue to dwell with us in pleasure and comfort, and with a good heart. Thus shalt thou advantage greatly, and receive every good thing at my hands. Wherefore, refuse me not, nor oppose my wish. I remained silent, for I was overwhelmed by his proposal and the stress of bashfulness it brought to my face. Seeing this, he rallied me and said, Art thou dumb? Is not thy heart with us? Then of a sudden I replied, O king, thy words took away my breath. As thou commandest, so I obey. Pleased at my compliance, the king immediately ordered his officials to bring the lady and the witnesses and forthwith I was married to her, with the king's blessing and the acclamation of all his court. She was of surpassing loveliness, and she brought me a dowry of abundant wealth and possessions. And to this the king added a magnificent house with servants and slaves, and assigned me a handsome salary. And I lived in ease and comfort, our days being full of delights. Gone was all thought of the perils and hardships I had endured, and gone was the fear of adversities in store. But there is no strength nor power but in God, and he orders the fates of men as he will. On an evil day, a great fear suddenly came to me by reason of a thing which I will make known to you. A companion of mine suffered a bereavement in that his wife died, whereupon I went to him and mourned with him, saying, Take heart, O brother, God will fill her place to thee with one far better. But he continued to weep, saying, Alas, how can I marry another, when this very day I depart this life? Nay, said I, that is not within reason, for thou art in good health and not like to die. Then he raised his head and dried his tears, and said to me very slowly, Hear me, O my brother, knowest thou not that to-day they will bury my wife, and that they will bury me also in the same tomb with her, for such is our custom. When husband or wife is buried, the other must be buried also, so that neither may continue to enjoy life alone. By Allah! said I, smiting palm on palm. This custom is wholly vile, and it toucheth me closely. Then, as we continued to discuss this matter, there came others who condoled with my companion, grieving not only for the loss of his wife, but also that they should never see him any more. 
and later in the day came yet others bearing a bier, and on this they laid the woman and carried her forth prepared for burial, with all her jewels and raiment and wealth, and the husband went with them. Through sympathy with my companion, and to bid him a last farewell, I followed the funeral procession till it halted in a distant spot on the seashore. There a great stone was lifted, and a vault exposed. Into this they threw the body of the woman, and then, by means of a stout cord, they lowered the husband gently till he rested by her side. A pitcher of water and seven cakes were then let down to him, and when he had freed himself from the cord, they drew it up and closed the sepulchre, and went their ways. "'By Allah!' said I within myself as I smote myself on the breast. "'This manner of death is the worst of all!' And on my return I went to the king with grief and fear gnawing at my heart. O king, I said, tell me why is this, that ye bury the living with the dead? Said he, O my son, it is the custom of our country, and has descended to us from our ancestors. Husband and wife are one, in death as in life. And I answered him with a question that concerned me nearly. O my lord, I said, and... The stranger that sojourneth with thee, if his wife die, do ye treat him in like manner? Yea, he replied, in like manner, even as thou hast seen. Then I departed from him in grief and mourning, lest I should perchance be bereft of my wife. In vain did I say to myself, Be comforted, maybe thou wilt die before her, none knoweth. In vain did I give myself up to my manifold occupations, the fear was not to be dispelled. And within a short time what I had feared came to pass. My wife was stricken with a fever, and when I had reason to hope she would recover, she suddenly relapsed and died. My grief at this was overwhelming, but as if to add to it, there came many to condole with me on her death and to mingle their tears with mine, for that I should soon be departing this life. The king himself came and commiserated with me on my most unhappy fate, and he said, There is no strength nor power in any but God. Farewell, O my son. And they prepared my wife for burial, arraying her in her richest garments and her finest jewels. But when they carried her to the burial place and cast her down into the pit, and all my companions pressed upon me to bid me farewell, my gorge rose, and I cried out upon them that their custom was vile. Loudly I spoke my bitter mind on the abominable nature of this thing. They would not listen, but took me by force and lowered me into the pit, together with the seven cakes and the pitcher of water, and when I had reached the floor of a vast cavern they called down to me, Untie the ropes, that we may draw them up. I answered, Draw me up with them. Nay, nay, they replied, we do but... Follow our custom. To the ravens with you and your custom, I retorted, for I had no stomach for this proceeding. Then, as I steadily refused to loose the ropes, they at last threw them down upon me, and having closed the mouth of the pit, went their way. Now was I in worse plight than I had ever been. On that cavern floor there were the bodies and bleached bones of those that had died a natural death, cheek by jowl, with those who had perished in the fulfilment of this abominable custom. And I said to myself, better to remain single and live than to marry and be buried alive. Nevertheless, knowing not night from day, I kept myself from death by eating sparingly of the cakes and drinking some of the water, 
for I was in no mood to die in so vile a manner after having come through great perils by mountain and sea. At length, when I had eaten all the cakes and drunk all the water, and hunger and thirst began to cry out within me, I arose and wandered to and fro in the cavern, stumbling and falling over dead bodies and biting the dust of bones that had crumbled long since. By dint of much groping in the dark, I at length found the wall of the cavern, and selecting therein a cavity free from bones and corpses, I stretched myself and slept. I was awakened later as if by hunger and thirst knocking at the door, and while I sat in gloom thinking of the plenty in Baghdad, fool that I was to leave it, I heard a sudden noise. Looking forth from my cavity, I saw that the stone had been removed from the opening of the cavern, and a dead body was being lowered. It was the body of a man, and after him was let down the living body of his wife. She was weeping and wailing for him and for herself, then the mouth of the cavern was closed again, and all was dark and silent, save for the wailing of the woman echoing through the cavern. Alas, she cried, that I should die this lingering death. Had I the means to end my life, then I would do it. Would that there were one here to slay me. When I heard this, I remembered that I had never been able to resist the pleadings of a woman. So I arose, and taking a stout leg-bone in my hand, I slew her according to her desire and I took her seven cakes and the pitcher of water which she would no longer need, and retiring to my cavity, I ate and drank. This thing occurred many times during my sojourn in that cavern, for a number of married men and women chanced to die, and though they did not always cry out for me to slay them, I knew their prayer beforehand, and answered it speedily. Thus the cakes and the water bequeathed to me stayed my spirit, and I continued to live. Time passed slowly, but yet it passed. I had no other means of measuring it except to call an hour, a day, and a day, a year, and I was weary to death of it all when an unwanted thing occurred. I was awakened suddenly from sleep by a noise at the far end of the cavern. Then I heard footsteps as of some beast. I arose, and arming myself with a stout bone, advanced upon the intruder, but it heard me and fled from me, and I could not come at it. Yet, as I followed its footsteps, I saw its form darken a pin-spot of daylight at the end of a crevice of the cavern. This gave me a glimmer of hope, for where that beast had passed, I myself might pass, and so gain the outer air. Over jagged points of rock I clambered towards that opening, now losing sight of it and now gaining view of it again, until at last I reached it and found that it was indeed a communication with the outer country. With some difficulty I forced my way through it and climbed down by a perilous pathway to the seashore. I had escaped from the sepulchre of the living and the dead, and I praised God for the sight of the sky and the sea. But when I had looked into my position and found behind me an impassable precipice, before me the wide-stretching sea, and above me the dome of heaven, I sat down on the shore with my head on my knees and said within myself, There is no way out. I cannot scale the sheer cliff, neither can I tread the fish's pathways in the sea, nor walk in the tracks made by birds in the air. There is no way out. Day followed day, and I strove to stay my hunger with what shellfish I could find, but the supply was meagre, and again and again I was forced to return to the cavern to receive reward of cakes and water in return for merciful death dealt by my hand. Far be it from me to rob the dead, and none can say I did so, 
It was in the spirit of a last gift, generously bestowed by those about to die, that chains of pure gold were hung about my neck, and rich jewels thrust upon me. These keepsakes of many I retained, assured that later I should carry them with me to a nameless grave in a desolate spot. But God, in his infinite mercy, willed it otherwise. For one day, sitting sadly on the shore, as was my wont, I espied a vessel on the sea. Hope surged high within my breast, and I arose and stripped myself of a white garment, and mounted it on a staff, and ran wildly to and fro, waving it above me. And when my signal was observed, the vessel stayed its course and sent a boat ashore. "'Who art thou, and what doest thou here?' cried one from the boat as it ran upon the beach. "'Know ye not that this is a desolate coast, and none has ever been seen upon it?' And I greeted them with joy, and answered them, telling them my strange experience in a few words. Then, their wonder strong within them, they took me across to the ship, and led me before the master, who marvelled greatly at finding a man where none had ever seen a human being before. He asked me many questions, and when I answered him, giving him the whole story of my adventures as heretofore set down, he was a man bewildered. Raising his eyes to heaven, he said, "'By Allah!' Thy case is extraordinary, and all around wondered that a man could experience such things and live. In return for his kindness in rescuing me from my terrible plight, I tended him with some of the rarest jewels I had brought with me from the cavern, but he refused me courteously, saying, Nay, O my brother, if we find one in like case with thee, we succour him, and give him to eat and drink, and if he be naked we clothe him. Then, at the first city we reach, we set him on land, with some valuable token of our good will, for so it is with us of the sea, that we are not unmindful of the suffering of others. And when I heard this, I prayed for him and his family, that he and they might live long in health and prosperity. Our journey from that place, where I had suffered so much, took us from island unto island towards the city of El Basra. As we proceeded, the places where we cast anchor grew more and more familiar to me, and, as of old, I bought and sold as merchants do. At length we arrived at the city of El Basra, whence, having transacted business there for some days, bartering and selling the jewels I had acquired, I journeyed to Baghdad. There, in the bosom of my family, and surrounded by my companions, I returned to my former habit of life. These, then, were the experiences of my fourth journey— and, O oh my brother Sinbad the landsman, if thou wilt honour me by thy presence to-morrow, I will relate to thee still stranger things that befell me in my fifth voyage. The Fifth Voyage of Sinbad the Sailor Looking back from the position of safety and comfort to which I had returned, I came in time to make light of the perils I had encountered and the sufferings I had endured. The advantages that had come to me through these perils and sufferings now stood in the foreground of my thoughts, and I said within myself, It is the life for a man, for how otherwise can he come at the meaning of the great book of the world than by treading its pages? And moreover, I had conceived the wish to become the owner of a ship, for thus the gain accruing from a voyage to other lands would be so much greater. Having considered the matter deeply, I arose from my life of luxury and ease and departed with many bales of merchandise for the city of El Basra. There in the river I found at length a splendid vessel which I purchased. I found a master and a crew over whom I set my own trusty servants, and having secured a goodly company of merchants as passengers, I embarked their bales and mine, and we set sail. 
We worked our way outwards, calling at island after island and doing the usual business that merchants find in those places, until one day we came to a large, uninhabited island. Here, while I was engaged in matters concerning the vessel, the merchants landed and, as I afterwards learned, they found there the great egg of a ruck, such as I had met with on a former voyage. Mistaking it for a deserted structure and failing to find an entrance, they had amused themselves by casting stones at it, so that it broke, whereupon a young ruck came forth from the shell, and they set upon this monstrous chicken in its helpless condition, and slew it and brought great slabs of its flesh back to my ship. When I heard what they had done, I was sore afraid, and reproached them for their rash action. For, look you, I said, there is not a doubt the mother ruck will seek to revenge the loss of her young, and seeing our ship will attribute the deed to us, and attack us, and destroy us. But they neither heeded my warning, nor repented them of their rash action. The vengeance of the ruck was sudden and dire. Scarce had I spoken when the sun was obscured from our sight, and looking up we beheld the gigantic bird descending upon the island. When it saw that its egg had been broken and its young one destroyed, it flew above us looking down at the ship and shrieking in a voice that filled the sky. On this it was joined by its mate, and the two circled around us, their hoarse cries of rage falling like thunder on the sea. In great fear, I bade the master and the sailors hoist the sails and seek safety in flight. Then, as soon as we began to draw off from the island, the rucks left us and flew inland, so that we thought that we had made good our escape, but soon they reappeared and came after us, each bearing in its talons a huge mass of rock. One of them flew above us and dropped the rock, so that we saw death descending upon us. But the great mass missed the ship by a narrow space, and falling close astern raised such a commotion of waves that the ship was flung up on a mountain of water and then hurled down against the bottom of the sea, before little by little she came to rest on the level tide. Then the other ruck dropped the rock from its talons, and fate ordained that it struck the ship astern with a mighty crash. Amid cries of fear and despair, we sank into the sea and all seemed lost. How I survived the shock and turmoil of that sudden shipwreck I cannot describe clearly, for I was like one stunned or wrenched from his mind apart. How I sought to save myself is gone from me by reason of the extreme peril. I can imagine only that I'd touched upon some wreckage and clung to it, for when my mind returned to me I found myself on the shore of an island sitting upon a plank which it seemed had borne me hither. That I had fought against wind and wave I knew, for I was well-nigh exhausted. I could do nothing more than drag myself painfully to a sheltered spot, where I rested and slept. When I arose later in the day, I was refreshed, and having found both fruit and water, I ate and drank, and my strength returned to me. I went forth upon the island and to and fro in it, but I found no other's footprints on the shore, nor any sign of human habitation from coast to coast, but that there was a dweller there I was soon to learn, and to my cost. It was on the following day, towards evening, when I was walking among the trees, that I came upon an old man sitting on the bank of a stream. He was a comely old man, with flowing silver locks and an ample white beard. He was clothed, from the waist downwards, with the leaves of trees threaded together. 
As I regarded him for some moments, I felt that his whole aspect betokened a disposition of simplicity and mild benevolence. Advancing upon the bank, I spoke to him, but he shook his head sadly and sighed, and I saw that his speech was gone. Then he made signs with his hands, as if to say, Mount me upon thy neck, and carry me across the stream. I felt kindly disposed towards this mild and gentle old man, and wished to do him a service, so I mounted upon my neck and took him across the stream. Now, I said, thou canst dismount when it pleaseth thee. But instead of dismounting, he wound his legs still more closely around my neck, and pressed his feet into my chest, so that I cried out with pain and rage, and attempted to throw him from my shoulders, but my frantic efforts were in vain. He stuck like a leech, and I could not dislodge him. Indeed, he clung so tight that he nearly throttled me, and I fell to the ground, exhausted. Then he belaboured me sorely with his feet until I arose with him again, and in this way he compelled me to obey him. When he would go in among the trees, he made a sign with his hand, and if I obeyed not with alacrity, he beat me with his feet unmercifully. By reason of his behaviour, I was at last compelled to cancel my first opinion of him, and though he cleaved to me night and day, we were by no means friends. I was his captive, and he ceased not to remind me of it. If I dallied by the way, or stumbled, his hard feet would rain blows upon me, and at night, when he slept with his legs wound tightly around my neck, he would often dream that I had disobeyed him, and would beat me violently with his feet and hands. For many days I was ridden hither and thither at the will of this obstinate old fellow, who, though he could not torment me with speech, was truculent enough in his manner and I reproached myself for having desired to do him a service, saying constantly in my mind, By Allah, never again while living will I do a service to any. At length, one day, the old man guided and belaboured me into a space on the island where pumpkins grew in abundance. While he was eating some of these, I took others that were ripe, and having cleaned out the seeds and coarse matter through a small aperture, filled them with the juice of grapes. Then I filled up the apertures and laid the pumpkins in the sun. Thus, in a few days, I procured pure wine, and every day thereafter, while the old man on my neck ate of the pumpkins, I drank of the wine until I became intoxicated, and laughed and sang and danced about with him among the trees, and when, with fist and heel, he desired to know the cause of this, I showed him the wine that I had made. Seeing that its effect upon me was so agreeable, he sought to achieve the same happy result by drinking largely of it himself, so that he grew hilarious and broke a pumpkin over my head, rocking and rolling in his seat with laughter. Then, as he continued to drink, he gradually lost control of his limbs, and lolled from side to side, whereupon I grasped his feet and unwound them from my neck and threw him on the ground. And so at last, to rid the earth of such a monster, I slew him and left him there for the vultures. After this, happiness returned to me, and I went about the island like one relieved of a heavy burden, as indeed I had been, and day by day I sat by the sea watching for a vessel. But I lived upon the island many days before I at last saw a ship approach and cast anchor off the shore. When the passengers had landed, I ran towards them and welcomed them, answering their many questions respecting my condition. They listened to my story with great amazement. Then someone said, this old man of whom thou speakest is surely he whom they call the old man of the sea. He hath ridden many to death, and none hath escaped but thee. Therefore praise God for thy deliverance. 
They took me to the ship and set food before me, and after I had eaten they brought me some clean clothes and I clad myself decently. As the ship set sail for El Basra, my thoughts went before it to Baghdad, the abode of peace. But I was destined to mischance, for a strange thing befell me. We had journeyed but a few days when we came to an island whereupon was a city with lofty spires and splendid houses. This was the city of apes, which I had heard that at night-time the people, fearing the apes, put out in boats upon the sea so to sleep in safety. I landed on this island with some companions, and in our going about the city I missed them. While I was searching everywhere, they must have returned to the ship, thinking I had preceded them, for when I reached the shore later the vessel had gone. I reproached myself for this mishap, for I had already suffered once at the hands of the apes, so I sat upon the seashore bemoaning my fate. While I was doing this, one of the many people of the city came to me and inquired as to my trouble, and I told him. "'Then come with us in our boat,' he said, "'for the night is falling, and if thou remain in the city, the apes will devour thee.' So I went with them, and we pushed off together with a multitude of other boats until we rested about a mile from the shore, and there we remained and slept until the morning, when everyone returned to the city and went about his occupation.' And in like manner, as the inhabitants sleep upon the sea by night and dwell in the city by day, so the apes infest the city by night and sleep in the forests by day. Woe betide any remaining in that city after the sun goes down, for he will of a certainty be torn limb from limb and devoured. I earned my bread in that island in a strange manner, and was able to set by a small store of gold. It was in this way I observed many of the people gathering pebbles on the shore and placing them in bags, and when they had collected a sufficient quantity, they went forth into a valley filled with lofty trees. Here slept the apes among the branches, for the trees were so high that none but an ape could climb them. It was the way of the people then to pelt the apes with the pebbles, whereupon they awoke screaming and chattering, and plucked the fruit from the trees and hurled it down at their tormentors, and I saw that the fruit was the coconut. When a sufficient number of these nuts had been secured, the people gathered them up and returned to the city, where they sold them. Very soon I too was gathering pebbles and pelting the apes in the trees, and in this way I amassed a great store of coconuts. These I sold and bought merchandise and traded, and prospered in the city. In this way I continued for a long time, until at last I took to buying coconuts from the people and storing them against the arrival of a ship, when I hoped to sell them in bulk. At length a large vessel anchored off the island, and I bargained with the merchants thereon. They agreed with me upon a good price for my store. With the money thus obtained, I bought more of the merchandise of the place, and embarked it upon the ship, then bidding farewell to my companions in the city, I took my departure. The ship was bound for El Basra, but on the voyage we lingered to visit many islands that I had not seen before. Upon one we found an abundance of cinnamon and pepper, and here I noted a peculiar thing. On every bunch of pepper was a large leaf that hung down when the sun shone, but when it rained this leaf twisted and erected itself above the tendrils to shield them. And this is the truth. So we sailed onwards past the islands of the Aloes Wood, where the people are depraved and know not the call to prayer, until we came at length to the Isle of Pearls. Here I gave some coconuts to the divers, saying... Dive for me, for luck. And they dived in the sea, and returned to the surface with pearls of great size, which they gave to me, assuring me that my fortune was of the best, so that when we reached Al-Basra, I was rich with pearls and merchandise, some of which I sold there, and some here, 
in Baghdad. Once more, in the lap of luxury and reposing in the bosom of my family, I returned to my former life of revelry and ease, and soon forgot the hardships I had endured. And this is the whole story of my fifth voyage. Return tomorrow, O Sinbad the Landsman, and thou shalt hear from me the adventures of my sixth voyage, for they are even yet more wonderful. The Sixth Voyage of Sinbad the Sailor On a day when I was living happily in Baghdad, having forgotten the perils and dangers of my former voyages, I was sitting at ease in my garden, when a party of merchants came to me, and their tales of travel aroused within my bosom a great longing to engage again in the hazardous delights of those things. I pondered long upon the matter, and though I had said within myself, never will I set forth again, I found that my mind was made up in spite of me. Therefore I set about collecting merchandise, and having packed a goodly number of bales, I departed for El Basra, where I took ship with a company of merchants and others of high repute. The outward voyage was pleasant and fortunate, and we did as others do, buying and selling and amusing ourselves in different cities. But there came a day of disaster, when the master of the ship suddenly discovered that we had wandered from our course and had lost our reckoning. He plucked his beard and smote his breast, and cried out in despair that we had sailed into an unknown sea where dire perils awaited us. And so it proved, for not long afterward, while we were sailing in a calm sea, a sudden wind burst upon us, and before the sails could be loosed, the rudder was broken, and the ship drifted and was driven at last upon the sides of a high mountain rising up to heaven. She was dashed to pieces by the violence of the waves, and from that terrible wreck few survived. There were some others besides myself who clung to the sides of the mountain and, by tooth and nail, climbed to a place of safety. Little by little, when the tide receded, we made our way down among the crags until we came to a strip of seashore, and from this point we could see that the island was of large size, its interior being sheltered from storms by the front of the mountain. But what took our wonder was this. On the seashore was amassed the wealth of a thousand wrecks. Scattered here, there, and everywhere in foam and high dry were flotsam and jetsam of richest merchandise, much of it spoiled by the sea, but much more cast high up and still of great value. All along the shore were planks and fragments of many vessels that had been wrecked on this inhospitable coast. And this was not all, for when we proceeded through the island we found a spring of pure ambergris overflowing into the sea. And by this the whales are attracted, but when they have swallowed it and dived to the depths of the sea, it turns in their stomachs, and they eject it so that it rises to the surface in solid lumps such as are found by sailors. But the ambergris that is cast about the opening of the spring melts in the heat of the sun, and its perfume is blown about the island, wafted sweet upon the breeze like a fragrant musk. When we had explored the island, and wondered at the many strange things it contained, we searched among the wreckage on the shore, and found some few barrels of preserved meats, and on these we stayed our hunger. With the provisions on the shore, and the fruit we secured on the island, we were in no danger of starvation, but a kind of fever seized upon our company, and one after another sickened and died. 
This was a time of stress and despair. Day after day, the living buried the dead until there was only one left, and that one was I. And I wept and waited as if death would not come uninvited. I arose and dug myself a grave in readiness, for there was none left to bury me when I died. It was on the seashore that I made my grave, so that when I should come to lie in it my last moments, the wind should blow the sand upon me and bury me. And in this state of mind I blamed myself for setting out on this voyage in disregard of the lessons learned from former perils. But God in his mercy led my footsteps forth, and I roamed in the island restless for the end. In my wanderings I came to a river gushing forth out of the side of the mountain, and after flowing for a space between banks of verdure in a valley, entering again another mountain. Having followed it to this point, I sat down upon a bank against the mountain wall and pondered, and I said within myself, This river, flowing through caverns within the mountain, must have an opening somewhere, perchance in a fertile country where people dwell. For a long time I turned the chances of this within my mind, and at last decided to build a raft and commit myself to it on the current, for at most it were better to die that way than in my present desolation. By means of ropes and wreckage from the seashore, my raft was soon constructed, and in its construction I omitted not to measure it according to the width of the river. Then, full of a wild hope that I might at length reach an inhabited region, I stowed upon it rich goods from the shore, ambergris from the spring, and the rarest jewels I could find in the beds of the watercourses. As I set myself upon the raft and launched it, I said, If I perish, I perish. But if I come to the haunts of men, I come to them rich in precious things. No sooner had I entered into the aperture of the mountain than I was suddenly encased in darkness, and, having no choice which way I went, flung myself flat on the raft, lest my head should be shattered against the roof of the tunnel. Like this I floated on, sometimes feeling there was a wide space around me, and sometimes clinging to the raft, lest some narrowing of the passage should sweep me to destruction. And all this time my terror was so acute that at last I swooned and lay face down on the raft, the plaything of fate and the sport of the rushing current. When I awoke, I found myself in the open air. The sun was shining above and the birds were singing in the trees around me. I was still lying on the raft, which was tied to a stake on the shore of a beautiful lake. As soon as I had raised myself and looked around me, a number of dark-skinned people gathered round and questioned me in an unknown language, but I shook my head, understanding nothing of what they said. At last one advanced from among them, and addressing me in Arabic, said, "'Peace be with thee, brother.' Then I seized him joyfully by the hand and greeted him, but I was weary and hungry and could give no account of myself because of my utter exhaustion. Seeing my state, he called for wine and food, and they hastened to set them before me. When I had eaten and drunk, and my strength had returned to me, I told what I had come through, and the one who had addressed me in Arabic interpreted it to the others. They were filled with wonder at my story, and insisted that I should accompany them to their king, and acquaint him with the history of my strange adventure. So they took me in, 
with the raft and all the riches I had laid upon it, and led me before their king, and from his state and magnificence I knew that I beheld the king of Sarandib, whose name and power and learning are known through all the earth. He saluted me in the custom of my own people, addressed me in Arabic, which fell easily from his tongue. This set me at my ease, and I told him my story, to which he listened with great attention. When I had finished, he raised his hand and said, By Allah, thou hast endured much, and thy case is extraordinary. Thou art greatly favoured by fate, wherefore I join my happiness with thine at thy deliverance and safety. I was greatly moved at his words, and begging his acceptance of a gift at my hands, I took the rarest jewels from the raft, together with a quantity of ambergris and aloes wood, and laid them at his feet. He graciously accepted my present, and immediately established me in a position of honour, bidding me dwell with him in his palace. I accepted his hospitality, and remained in his land in great happiness and honour, associating with the grandees and people of rank, and I said to myself, I care not if the rest of my days are passed in this kingdom of splendour and magnificence. It was indeed a land of wealth and abundance, and there the day is equally divided with the night the whole year round, and when the sun rises, light bursts suddenly upon the earth, and when it sets, the darkness descends like a curtain that is loosed. There is a lofty mountain whose glittering streams contain the richest jewels, with rare minerals, and everywhere on hill and valley are wafted the fragrant odours of spices, the delights of this realm held me enthralled for a long time, so that I forgot my own country, wherein is the abode of peace. But on a day when I ascended the high mountain, and looked far out across the sea, I seemed to hear the voice of my own land calling to me. Then, with that far call still in my ears, I went in to the king and asked him to let me go. At first he demurred, and tried to induce me to remain with him and his people, but when I pressed for his permission, he relented, and gave me a large sum of money for my journey, and also many gifts. When I was about to depart, the king called me to him, and handed me a letter written on fine parchment. This he asked me to give into the hands of the caliphate, Harun ur-Rashid. The substance of the letter was this. The king of the Sarandib sends greetings. Peace be on thee, O brother, from the king of the Sarandib, who commands a thousand elephants, and in whose palace are ten thousand jewels. By the bearer of this we send thee a gift, for we have a deep affection for thee. The gift is all too trifling, but we beseech thee to accept it graciously and reply to us. Peace be upon thee. The present with which I was entrusted was a goblet of ruby, the inside of which was set with sparkling diamonds and priceless pearls, truly a kingly gift. Having bid farewell to the king and such of his people that I had associated with, I embarked in a large ship which was bound for El Basra. In good time we reached that port and I journeyed up the river to Baghdad. My first thought was to deliver the letter and the gift into the hands of the caliphate, so I lost no time in approaching him and fulfilling my pledge to the king of Sarandib. He was greatly pleased with the letter, and when he saw the sparkling goblet of ruby and precious stones, he was filled with delight. "'Oh, Sinbad,' he said, "'this king must be exceedingly wealthy and powerful. What sayest thou?' And I told him of the wonder and magnificence of the land of Sarandib.' 
How the king's seat of state is on a splendid throne placed upon a gigantic elephant, with his courtiers and officials standing about him on a richly decorated platform. How there are around his majesty a thousand other elephants on which sit the princes of the land, and surrounding all on every hand ten thousand horsemen clad in silk and gold. And how a crier goes before the king, exalting him to heaven and another behind him, proclaiming, Great is he, but he will die. Again and again and again I say it, he will die. And as I continued to tell of these things, the Caliph marvelled greatly at the wisdom and power of this king. Report hath spoken truly, he said, as thou hast witnessed to me, O Simbad, the tales of his might and dominion have exaggerated nothing. He then thanked me for my faithful service and bestowed rich gifts upon me and bade me seek my own house in peace and content. There, in the bosom of my family, I lived at ease, having put behind me the perils of travel and set fixedly before me the determination never to seek them again. Yet, O Sinbad the landsman, my determination was overruled by the direct command of the caliph. And if thou wilt honour me by thy presence again to-morrow, I will relate to thee the events of my seventh and last voyage. The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad the Sailor In adhering to my vow never again to fare forth from my native land in search of strange wonders at the risk of deadly peril, I was contented and happy in my state. While I was sitting one day thinking on this, and saying within myself, I am here in the abode of peace, and Allah be praised, I shall never quit it for the haunts of trouble. Lo, there came a messenger summoning me to the caliphate. I arose and followed him, and presently I was before his majesty saluting him and kissing the ground. Welcome, O Sinbad, he said. Know that I have a matter of importance for thee to execute. Sire, I answered, I am thy slave. Then the caliph unfolded to me his wish, which was that I should go to the king of Sarandib, bearing a letter and a gift. By Allah, I cried when I heard this, O oh, my lord, be not displeased, but have I not already taken a vow that I will not go forth again upon the sea, lest I suffer worse things than have already befallen me? The bare mention of a voyage causes my knees to shake and I repeated to him the terrible sufferings and perils I had encountered in my travels, whereupon the caliph raised his hands and said no man had endured worse things. Nevertheless, he added, smiling upon me, thou wilt go forth once more for my sake, and thou wilt bear my letter and gift to the king of Sarandib. It was not for me to disobey the command of the Prince of the Faithful, and I bowed my head in submission. I took from his hands the account of the items composing the gift, together with a letter and a sum of money for my expenses, and bidding him farewell, went forth, saying to myself that fate was against me. The Caliph's gift to the King of Sarandib was one of great magnificence. First there was a splendid white horse, the equal of which was not to be found in the length and breadth of Arabia. Its saddle and trappings were adorned with gold and set with brilliant jewels. Then, in addition to this, there were a priceless robe fit for the king of all the earth, a great quantity of rich stuffs from Egypt and Greece, 
and a wonderful crystal goblet of such a kind that a man's whole lifetime would be required to make it. And the caliph's letter ran as follows. Peace be on thee from the king Er Rashid, highest in any land but thine, under God, whose name be exalted. We rejoiced greatly at thy letter, and we have sent thee some royal trifles, thy gracious acceptance of which will give us joy and happiness. Peace be with you. With all these things I embarked upon a large vessel and set sail from El Basra with a company of merchants. We journeyed for long days and nights until at length we came to the island of Sarandib. There I went in to the king in his palace, and he gave me a joyous welcome. By Allah, he said, we have often thought of thee, O Sinbad, and now we rejoice to see thy face again. Then he bade me sit beside him and asked with courtesy the reason of my visit. I informed him and told him of the caliph's gift, handing him the letter. When he had read it, he was overjoyed, and when at length he saw the gift and the richness of it, he marvelled greatly and conferred upon me all the honours befitting the ambassador of the Prince of the Faithful. After some days of pleasure and happiness in his land, I made known to him my desire to depart speedily to my own country, but it was with difficulty that I obtained his permission. At last he allowed me to go, bearing friendly messages to the caliphate, and I set sail for my own land, glad that I was now free to return to the life which I had vowed myself. But, O oh Simbad the landsman, the chances of long voyages upon the sea are such as thou knowst not of. We had not been many days on our course when, as we were passing near an island, a fleet of boats put off from the shore and surrounded us. They were manned by a host of men clad in suits of mail. They looked more like demons than men and were armed with swords and daggers. They drew in on us and attacked us, slaying those who offered resistance and taking the rest prisoners. They towed the ship to the island and took all the merchandise in the hold. Then they led us away to be sold as slaves. It fell to my lot that I was purchased by a rich man of gentle mien. He took me to his house, gave me food and drink, clothed me well and treated me in a friendly fashion. Somewhat comforted, I rested, giving my hands to light tasks about his house. After some days he called me to him and said, Art thou skilled in any art or trade? I asked him that I was a merchant, and was skilled only in the art of buying and selling. Canst thou not use the bow? he asked. Now I was skilled in archery, and I offered to give him proof in the matter. He then placed a bow and arrow in my hands, and I pierced a mark at fifty paces. It is well, he said. Thou art skilled. The next day he sat me behind him on an elephant, and at nightfall we journeyed to a place where there were some very high trees. One of these he bade me to climb, and sit there with an arrow on bowstring till the elephants came at dawn, when I was to shoot, and if I was so fortunate as to kill one, I was to run to him in all haste and inform him of it. He then went away on his elephant, leaving me in the tree, full of terror. When at last the sun rose, a great number of elephants came straying about among the trees, and when one came beneath mine, I sent my arrows at him. Late in the morning, a well-aimed shaft pierced the brain of a monstrous beast, and with loud roarings he fell and died. At evening time, when the other elephants had retired from the spot, I descended from the tree and ran with all haste to my master, who rejoiced at my news and sent his slaves to bring the beast in. Day after day I continued at this sport, each day securing at least one elephant. 
but a day came when trouble gathered round that tree in which I sat. It appeared in the form of countless elephants of large size and ferocious aspect. One who seemed to be a king among them led the others to my tree. After he had thundered round it many times until the whole world trembled, he made a dash at it, and winding his trunk around it, tore it up by the roots and threw it down. When, half-stunned, I found my way out from the broken branches, the great elephant came upon me bellowing loudly, and seizing me with his trunk, bore me aloft. In this manner he led the whole herd of elephants in a wild stampede that made the earth shake, and they ceased not in their career until they came to a valley, in which there were a great number of elephants' bones and teeth and tusks. On a heap of these the king elephant set me down very gently, and after that he and the others turned and walked away, leaving me there. I looked about in the valley, and saw a wealth of gleaming white tusks on every hand, and I said within myself, the elephants liked not the death of one of their number every day, and they have done this to show how I may become by an abundance of tusks without further slaughter. Then I found my way back over a great distance to the abode of my master. He welcomed me as one returned from the dead, for when he had found the tree torn up by the roots, he had concluded that the elephants had made an end of me. I told him what had befallen me, and described the position of the valley where the tusks lay. When he heard this, he was greatly excited, and lost no time in mounting me behind him on an elephant, and setting forth to find the spot where so much wealth was stored. We reached the valley without mishap, and I showed my master the ivory, at sight of which his joy knew no bounds. We then laded the elephant with as much as he could carry, and returned with it to the house. This adventure of mine placed me in a most favourable light in my master's eyes, and because I had been the means of revealing to him a source of enormous wealth, he set me free and gave me permission to return to my own country. He was even better than his word, for not many days later he set me on board a vessel bound for El Basra, and presented me with a large sum of money for my passage and expenses, together with many bales of merchandise. My return voyage was very fortunate. The traffic I did at the different cities on the way brought me great profit, and I brought many rare things suitable for gifts. On my arrival at Baghdad, I went in to the caliph and told him all that had befallen me, and he was so astonished thereat and so delighted at my return that he commanded his scribes to write my story in letters of gold, and he said to me, O Sinbad, my son, thou hast done well, and now... Thou shalt have the wish of thine heart, and keep thy vow, for, unless thou so desirest, thou shalt go forth no more upon the sea. This, O Simbad the landsman, is the end of the story of my voyages. And now, as I have conceived an affection for thee, thou shalt dwell with me and be my boon companion, and we shall pass our lives together in a state of the utmost joy and happiness, strengthened by God, whose name be exalted, the great, the omnipotent creator of sea and land. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed listening to the voyages of Sinbad the Sailor. If you want access to more classic science fiction and fantasy stories, or if you just want to show your support for The Well Told Tale, please consider visiting the Well Told Tale Patreon page at patreon.com slash the well told tale. There's a link in the description. 
Please join me next week as we open up a classic science fiction story from one of the masters of the genre. I hope you can join me.